If you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd like for you to turn to the book of Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, as we pick up where we left off last week. We're going to be thinking this morning about this freedom that we have been given in Christ. And the reality is, and you see in your bulletin, we are free not to sin, but to love. I have read other titles of sermons similar to that. I read one this week that said, Free to Love was the title of his exposition of this particular section. We have others that we looked at that categorize these verses just a little different than what we're going to, but ultimately we get to the same spot. And that is this. What is the nature of the freedom that we have in Christ? This is one of the inevitable, unavoidable realities of the true gospel. Namely, it begs the question, if we are totally free in Christ, what does that really mean? (laughs) Because for us, we all have the remaining corruption of the nature of sin. The Bible talks about it in the term, the flesh. We still have that battle. And our faculties as human beings are fallen and corrupted. In other words, our logic and our ability to reason is fallen and corrupted. The understanding that we have of the world, the way we look at things and what definitions we give to things and the way we view morality and ethics from merely the human standpoint is corrupted. And it is marred by sin. And therefore, we learn terms like freedom a lot of times in a context that is not very helpful in understanding the biblical term. And that happens a lot, by the way. I'll tell you two other terms that are just absolutely blown all over the place. And will and, and, and the world that you live in will not help you. With a careful biblical definition of the words faith and love. You need to look at the Bible to understand what the Bible means when it talks about love. When it talks about faith. It talks about freedom. These types of things. So the natural inclination. I mean you just can't hardly help it. When you're looking at this kind of biblical teaching that we have been given here in the book of Galatians. You can't help but ask the question. And that's why God, the Holy Spirit, inspired the Apostle Paul, who understood his time as well as human experience. That's why they put it in here. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. And we're only going to read to verse 16. A little short text this morning. Here's what it says. For you were called to freedom, brothers. You were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out. That you are not consumed by one another. But I say. Walk by the Spirit, 
And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to bow and thank you for this revelation in the book of Galatians. We thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for your spirit who gave him truth. We thank you this morning for the spirit that works in us to illuminate truth to our minds and hearts. And we pray that you will take these words and solidify them to our hearts. Help us, O oh God, live them out in appropriate ways for your honor and glory and for the good of this church and for the good of future and other generations. We pray this in faith, in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Well, I want to mention to you and use our time like this, three observations about Christian freedom. Some of these statements that I'm going to share with you will say, Christian freedom is, and some of these statements will be, Christian freedom is not this. And so that will be the way we're going to look at it. Because if you look at these verses, beginning in verse 13, you were called to freedom, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. You can see that in the mind of the apostle and the Holy Spirit, when we talk about people being free in Christ... The natural question that begs is, okay, what exactly do you mean by that, by freedom? Because what we have learned throughout this entire book is that the Apostle Paul is writing to defend the historic biblical truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of the grace of God that sinners are saved, not on the basis of what they do, but on the basis of what God has done in grace on their behalf. Grace is the unmerited and the unearned favor of God whereby he acts himself on behalf of sinners so that sinners will be saved. He does this through the person of the Son. God the Son came into the world and died on the cross so that sinners can be saved by bearing the penalty that they deserved, they can be set free. He lived a perfect life. He died in place. So he deals with the establishment of righteousness that is imputed to us, that is accredited to us who believe. And he deals with our sin by dying in our place and for our sins. And so he does that. And the Holy Spirit now works through the proclamation of the good news from God concerning the Son, Jesus Christ, that you can be saved and justified in the sight of God, not on the basis of what you do, uh, and, and, and especially, as we've learned from this book, not on the basis of Mosaic law-keeping, but rather on the basis of faith, that you believe and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Now, what he's saying is further than that that we have been looking at. Namely this, that you are set free in Christ and that you don't need the law anymore to live the Christian life. You, you only need what you have, namely the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. 
You have had, if you're a born-again Christian this morning, you have had the radical change on the inside that gives rise to new affections, new desires, new wants, new direction, new purposes, and they're all Godward and godly. And that happens by the power of the Spirit, which we'll see in a moment. But what is Christian freedom? And one of the things that, that crops up almost immediately is the question, well, then does that mean that I'm free to sin? If, if, if it's grace that saves, which is nothing you can do to get it, and you got it while you were in rebellion, while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, you were made alive together with Christ, then that should mean that I can pursue a life of sinfulness and that is what he means by Christian freedom. But that would not be accurate, would it? Would not be accurate. That would be a misunderstanding of, number one, biblical grace. It would be a misunderstanding of biblical faith. It would be a misunderstanding of biblical freedom. You, you would have to misunderstand those three things at least. To say to yourself and to others that Christian freedom equals do whatever you want to do. It doesn't matter. Christian freedom just comes to you as a gift. Not on the basis of what you do and it never will. Salvation, justification is by the finished work of Christ. Period. However, as we learned two weeks in a row, we have been given this radical change and indwelling spirit of God so that now we have new desires and godly pursuits. So here we go. Number one, Christian freedom is not, is not the opportunity for the flesh. Christian freedom in the idea and the concept of Christian freedom, Christian freedom is not an opportunity for the flesh. Verse 13a. You can see it there so clearly. Chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. That's the Greek term for siblings in a family. So it is to be understood as brothers and sisters in Christ. For you were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. One of the things and one of the words that you need to put in your vocabulary is the word antinomian. I'm going to tell you what it means, but you need to learn it. What it means, anti, you can hear that at the first part of it. And that last part of it comes from a word in the Greek, nomos, that means law. Anti-law, lawless, antinomian. And it is something that perhaps Paul was accused of by the Jewish leaders. They came around and they were saying, this Paul is preaching that we do not need the law that God gave to Moses. And you don't have to keep the law in order to be just and righteous in the sight of God, and accepted in the sight of God. And that cannot be true. That's just the very opposite of a God of who is a God of justice and holiness and purity and righteousness. 
How can it be that we then would be his children and live in lawlessness? No law. No moral law. We're just free in Christ and so we can do whatever we want. But what you and I need to understand is that Paul did not reject the moral law of God. Paul did not reject the moral law of God. What is morally wrong to God in the Old Testament is morally wrong to God today. God doesn't change. His standard of morality never changes. Paul was not rejecting the moral law so that now we are free, say, for example, to dishonor our fathers and mothers at our pleasure or to steal from someone or to lie in order to make ourselves look good or bear false witness against someone so that they get in uh, put in prison or something would happen the moral law of god never changes any more than god himself changes so paul was not rejecting that paul was rejecting the idea that a person is established as just and righteous in the sight of God on the basis of their performance of the ceremonial law that God gave to the people of Israel. That law that comes to us and speaks to us from outside of us is no longer necessary once Christ has come and accomplished the work that he accomplished. Because the law was given so that we would understand that we are are sinners in need of a Savior. And therefore, when Christ came, we now look to Him and He has fulfilled the law. And therefore, that part of that law is over with. There's no more need for that. There's no more need to go through the dietary laws and the ceremonies and the rituals and the uh, festivals that were all pointers to Christ. But the morality, or you might call it the spirit of the law of God, does, does not change any more than God himself changes. He didn't reject the moral law. He rejected the external ceremony and ritual, listen, as a means of justification. We don't need the Old Testament law that God gave to Moses in order to be just in the sight of God. Because it's never by the performance of the law that establishes us as just in God's sight. The moral Law of God is as eternal as God Himself. But in Christ, Christians, listen, have an inward change that motivates the Christian to live according to God's moral standards. The difference is motivation. The, the, the law that God gave to the people of Israel, you considered it like this book. It's external to me. And it speaks to me from outside of me. The work of the Spirit of God in the, under the preaching of the gospel of freedom in Christ and what he accomplished in his life and death and resurrection. The difference is the, the law external to me warns me and through and produces fear in me so that I will walk and behave in a certain way. The motivation in the Christian life, however, is one from the inside out from the inside out 
And so to attempt to live the Christian life simply by looking at the external law and feeling the pressure to obey and conform my behavior to that law so that I can be just in the sight of God, Paul says, you'll never get saved that way. But Christian freedom in and of itself is not an opportunity for the flesh. It is not an opportunity for us to be dominated by our sinful nature. As I mentioned before, beloved, you know without me telling you that you have a sin nature. And although we are totally free in Christ Jesus, we have been given the spirit to enable us to have victory in our lives over sin and to walk in a way and live in a way that is in alignment with God's moral standards. And even to help us to understand what those standards truly are because you can obey outwardly and conform your behavior but if as we have learned your heart is not attuned to that and desiring that out of love for God and love for others then there's still a huge problem in our lives the inward change is what is necessary so that it's not the external pressure to conform our behavior out of fear, but it comes from the heart as we desire to live in a God-honoring, Christ-exalting way. If you would hold your place there and turn to the book of Romans for just a moment, Romans chapter 6. Now, if you'll look there in Romans chapter 6, up at verse 1, you're going to see the same exact dilemma that I was talking about here In the book of Galatians chapter 5 verse 13. You are free in Christ to do whatever you want. And the Holy Spirit is there in you. To give you God word and godly desires. Wants. So the problem is often. Just as a little bit of a side note. But the problem is. If I constantly want sin. I, I need to be concerned about that. Really concerned about that. Now, we're going to get into it a little bit further in, in, in our study in Galatians about this warfare that we're dealing with. But it's still, it is concerning because the Spirit gives us a new heart. But let, let's listen to the dilemma that he comes to in Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? What was he talking about just previously? Look at, look at chapter 5, verse 20. Now the law came came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace what abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? If if there's more sin, there's more grace. Then Paul says, "Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound?" Wouldn't that just increase the grace of God the more that I sin? Wouldn't it be in alignment with that statement that where sin abounds, grace superabounds, that I should just continue in sin that grace may abound all the more? See, it's a logical question that comes to people's minds talking about grace, talking about freedom that we have in Christ. And so what does Paul say to that? By no means. It perish the thought, is what he's saying. By no means. 
And then he, then he, listen to how he answers it. How can we who, what, died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in what? Newness of life. The Spirit produces a new creation that we covered. That Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit in us now is working in us to animate us with godly and Godward desires. Look in chapter 13 of the book of Romans. Chapter 13 and verse 14. Romans chapter 13 and verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its, what? Desires. The flesh has desires. And as we're going to see, if you go back to the book of Galatians just for a moment, he says down there in verse 16, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Over in the book of Romans, he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Putting on Christ is just the same. It is being controlled by the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ, who gives us new, holy and godly and Godward desires. Look, if you will, back in Romans chapter 3 for just a moment. Romans chapter 3. And uh, let's break in about verse 26. Romans chapter 3, verse 26. He's talking about Jesus dying on the cross as a substitute. And then he comes to verse 26 and he says, It was to show his, that is God's righteousness, at the present time, so that he might be, listen, just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So it's it's not by the external performance of your behavior in the law that justifies you. But it is the work of Christ that we believe on by faith. And then in verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. You don't boast or brag at all. There's no room for you to boast or brag. By what kind of law is, the, is it excluded? By a law of works? No. But by the law of what? Faith. For we who hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Or is he the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law? Listen, by this faith, do we then destroy God's law by faith? No. Same statement. By no means. Perish the thought. On the contrary, we what? Uphold the law. We, we uphold the law of God that he has, the moral standards of God. We uphold them because now we have the ability for the first time to uphold them by the power of the Holy Spirit from the inside out. Paul is not saying that we are free to live lawlessly. We're not to give ourselves over to the flesh and be driven by the flesh, but we are, for 16 to be motivated and empowered and controlled by 
the Spirit. Number two. Number two. The first one is Christian freedom is not an opportunity to the flesh. We'll talk more about that later. We're just getting started on this. Secondly, Christian freedom is. Christian freedom is. Compelled by love to serve other people. Compelled. Christian freedom is compelled by love to serve other people. The fruit of the Spirit. If you go on down in chapter 5. And verse 22, chapter 5, verse 22, it says the fruit of the Spirit is the first one on the list, love. The Spirit of God produces a love in the child of God, and that love is lived out by faith in actions of love toward God and toward other people. Christian freedom is compelled by love to serve other people. Look at, if you will, in chapter 5, again, the second half of verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. What's the alternative? But through love, what? Serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. What is the word? You shall love your neighbor as your Self. Faith expresses itself in love. Love for God, love for the church, and love for other people in general. Love for other people. So we depend and, and believe and trust in God and the finished work of the cross and in dependency upon God by faith. We love. We love God and we love each other and we love the peoples of the world. And this quote there in verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbors yourself. That's a quote from the law in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. Leviticus 19, 18 is where he, is where he takes that text. The, the law of God, he says, can be summarized. You remember Jesus was asked the question, what is the greatest law? And what did he say? He said two things, right? He said, number one, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, what do you, what do you think the law means in when, that he gave to Moses at the beginning before the Ten Commandments when it says, you shall have no other gods before me. You, you, you shall not create any graven images. In that first section of the law that God gave to Moses, it's dealing with that idea, that concept, that spirit, that precept of love preeminently for the true and the living creator God. <laughs> I don't have to go back and read that every day to motivate myself because I have the spirit of God within me. And now he's giving me Love in my heart by the Spirit. Love for God. And Jesus said, and the second is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what Paul picks up here from Leviticus nineteen eighteen, and also from the, the teaching of Christ the Lord himself. So the summary of all of those laws, of all of that list, is love God supremely and love everybody else like yourself. 
do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's the same kind of principle that captures the spirit of the attitude and the heart of the child of God. It's not the rituals. It's not the ceremonies. It's not the dietary laws and particulars in the details of what the priest should wear and when he should come and what he should bring and how he should go through the motions of it. It's not the liturgy that makes us righteous. You can go through all of those external motions and and not be doing it from a heart that truly loves God. So Christian freedom is compelled by love to serve one another and to love people. One of the greatest freedoms, my friends, that you will ever know in this life is freedom from yourself. And I think you would agree with that. Our own selves. One of the, one of the things that has to be at the root and the heart of sinfulness is self-centeredness. Self-centeredness. What, what do people fight for? Because I gotta have what I want. If you want it too, then we got problems. Right? Self-centeredness and at, at the root of sin is this big word, pride. Everything is about me. And one of the greatest freedoms, Paul says, is to be free in Christ, is to be free to serve through love one another. That's the nature of Christian freedom. If you turn back, I mentioned to you Romans 15 and verse 3. Our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says this about him, chapter 15, verse 3. For Christ did not, what? Please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Christ did not please himself. He was selfless. His desire was to do the will of his Father who sent him. And one of the greatest freedoms that you and I can ever experience is the freedom from ourselves to live a life of devotion to God, our Creator. And that's what true freedom is. (laughs) True freedom is the freedom to love God supremely and to love others as yourself. To be compelled by love to serve one another. Turn to Romans 14 for just a moment. Romans 14. I want us to see that context because it's going to become very important here in just a moment. I want us to see the context of 15.3. The context is this. Let me give it a little preface. The context is this. What does Christian freedom look like? (laughs) If I'm free in Christ, does that mean that I can just run over everybody? Does that mean that I can demand my way? All the time? Does that mean that I'm free? I get to do what I want to do and I don't give any care or concern or regard for anybody else? Is that Christian freedom? Well, listen to the way Paul writes in chapter 14 of the book of Romans. He says, as for the one who is weak in the faith. There are people, my friends today, and, and I don't know where all of you are, but there are people that are weak in the faith and there are people that are strong in faith. They're both Christians But the weak person is a legalist and the strong person 
is not a legalist. They don't depend upon the external law out of fear. I need to conform. I need to conform. I need to conform. But they are motivated from the change of heart or the inside. They understand that everything in this life is perishing and it is created for our enjoyment in the Lord and we are free in Christ. But the legalist is someone who is weak in the faith. Now, they could be someone who's, who, who is totally lost. But in this context, it's a weak brother. He says, welcome him, but do not quarrel over what? Opinions. <laughs> you see, there are some things in the Christian life that the Bible doesn't speak to directly and specifically. There are some things. And those things are not central to salvation. They're not central to you walking in the joy of the Lord. They're just, they're just things that you can make a wise God honoring decision about. And Paul says that there are people who are weak in faith and you need to welcome them and don't quarrel over opinions. Listen, he gives an example, verse two. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Why? Because the weak person thinks that if I eat this meat, that I am going to offend God. And Paul says, now, let the one who eats, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. You have to be understanding of one another. You have to serve one another through love. That is the nature of Christian freedom. It's not to get your way at any cost, but it is what is going to be best for the upbuilding of my brother. What is going to be the best for the upbuilding of my sister in Christ? What is going to be the best for this person out here? That I'm trying to witness to and share the gospel with. What is best to build them up? Not how can I share my opinion that differs from them and force that, as it were, in their faces. He says, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So what was happening in this particular context was, if you went to the marketplace, you could buy some meat that was there for sale, and it was meat that was slaughtered in a sacrifice to a pagan god, an idol. And so the Christian is all excited about living for God and Christ alone, and and everything is about Jesus, the true and the living God, the creator God of the Bible. And their conscience is weak and their faith is weak. They, they, don't, they don't understand the liberty that they have. And so they think that somehow if I eat this meat that it's going to offend God. But the person that is stronger in the faith, the person that is, has a better uh, understanding of Christian freedom knows that that meat is meat that God gave. And you're free to eat it. But Paul says it gets complex because we need to consider one another and not just ourselves. We need to consider one another and not just ourselves. Jump down, if you will, to verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. 
For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in what? Love. This, this is what we're talking about. Christian freedom is the freedom to, to love and serve one another. Not the freedom to run all over each other and devour each other and destroy each other. He says, if you are going to go about an action, an activity that you, you might be free to do it in Christ and you know you are, but you might not be right in doing it because you're putting a stumbling block in front of a weaker brother by doing so. He says, you're not walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. You see what he's saying here? It can be summarized in this phrase. Consider other people. Consider them. Consider your witness. Consider your, the credibility of your witness. Consider what it, what it might mean to someone else that's weaker, even though you know you have the freedom to do it. Everything, he says in verse 20, everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one. Who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. (laughs) You know what he just said? You can be right and wrong at the same time. If you don't consider other people. You can be totally free and okay to do something. Eat something. Drink something. But if you are putting, by doing that, you're putting a stumbling block in front of somebody else that's a weaker brother or sister in the faith. They need to come to a more full and robust understanding of the freedom and, and the way that this all works. He says, you're, you're wrong in doing that. You need to consider somebody else. Don't look at yourself and when you lay your head on your pillow at night say i need to pass judgment on myself because i saw that brother stumble i saw that that sister stumble for what i approved for what i approved but whoever has doubt is condemned if he eats because he his eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin now we're getting close to our text our verse verse 3 15:1 We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to what? Please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The context of how he uses Christ as an example there is that we are to live in a way that builds each other up out of love. And if you go back to chapter 5 of the book of Galatians, you'll see very clearly that that's exactly the the way that he's talking about this. 
Listen to the flow of thought. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. To serve your own fleshly, impulsive desires. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Look at verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another like animals, bite and consume each other, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And so the alternative is to destroy the church for which Christ died. All because you think that freedom means an opportunity to the flesh or you think that freedom means the opportunity to do whatever you want to do and not consider the impact that it will have on other people. So we could say it like this. The summary of verse 15 is Christian freedom is not freedom to hurt your brother or sister in Christ. It, that's, that's what it is not. Christian freedom is not the freedom to hurt your brother or sister in Christ. That's the summary of 15. Okay. Let me close with this final statement. Verse 16 Christian freedom walks by the Spirit. Christian freedom walks by the Spirit. And we'll pick this up next time because this is exactly what the rest of the book is about. How this is lived out. Especially this chapter. Christian freedom walks by the Spirit. And I'll give you two verses, two passages rather, and then we're done. You remember, I'll just tell you the one, Philippians 2 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who has worked in you both the will and to do his good pleasure. And so, if you would turn to Romans one more time, chapter 8, we'll end with this one. Romans chapter 8, Christian freedom walks by the Spirit. It's not freedom, Christian freedom is not an opportunity for the flesh. It's not about doing whatever you want to do without considering the impact of your actions on other people. But it is compelled by love to serve one another to the glory of God and the upbuilding of His church. And the way that it happens, Paul says, is by the power of the Spirit. He said in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So the key is walking by the Spirit, not trying to conform your behavior through fear, looking at the external law. But it's to be filled with the Spirit and walk by the Spirit. And you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. To be filled with the Spirit, the Spirit is never going to lead you to live in a way that is going to put a stumbling block in front of a brother or sister in Christ. I assure you that. But to walk by the Spirit is to have this warfare. <laughs> oh, you thought it was going to be easy. It's not that it's easy. It's just that you have the power of victory. Apart from Christ and the work of the Spirit, you had no hope of victory. In the inward motivation of the heart, and the outward conformity of the behavior, you had no hope whatsoever. But by the power of the Spirit, you do have the power to overcome in Christ. Well, this whole chapter, Romans chapter 8, is about this. 
Let me jump in, though, about verse 9. Romans 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, listen. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if, listen, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. It's the Spirit of God in us that enables and empowers us to have victory in the warfare against the flesh. Because He gives us both the motivation and the desire and the will to godliness and the power and ability to live it out. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank You for this time in Your Word and with Your people. We pray this morning that You will just solidify this in our hearts and our minds. God, help us to draw a good, clear line between justification in your sight and salvation, eternal life. And then, on the other hand, to understand the true Christian motivation and the true picture of what it is to be free. To be free to be who we are in Christ. Free to be who we are in Christ. Help us, O God, to live our lives full of the Holy Spirit, that we would not gratify the desires of the flesh. Help us, O God, to live filled with the Holy Spirit, that we will have love for you and love for one another. Help us, O God, to consider each other, that we don't consume each other and devour each other and destroy the unity and the power and the witness of the church. Help us, God, we pray. There's one here this morning that just says... (laughs) I want to be saved. I want to just know salvation in my life. That's the first step. I want to know that I'm right with God. I pray for them, Lord, that you will draw them to turn away from sin and turn away from their performance and trying to do better and turn and look and believe upon Jesus Christ to trust that what he did on the cross is full and sufficient to save them to the uttermost who believe. Help them to trust in Him and Him alone for justification. And God, we pray that Your Spirit would bear witness with them of this operation, this work, this transformation that they have undergone. I pray for that in Jesus' holy name, by faith. Amen. Amen.